Uh, if you're new with us today, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here at Church on Mill. About roughly 75, 80% of the time you show up, um, I will be the one uh, preaching as the main teaching pastor here. Um, however, we like to have other leaders uh, preach. And so today I want to introduce Logan, who is coming. Come on up, brother. Give uh, Logie, if you would, a welcome. Uh, Logan is uh, here on staff for a year as one of our pastoral interns. He is uh, primarily serving our college students. We love college students. We're thankful for them and uh, are grateful that God has brought Logan here to invest there. Uh, Logan is a man that I would uh, commend to you as one who loves the scriptures, is passionate about them, and uh, portrays them in an effective, godly way. And so we're looking forward to hearing him today. Thank you for your work. Second Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from them listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. But as for you, Paul told Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Ever since Paul wrote uh, those words, churches have gathered to hear the preaching of God's word, that is the main thing we do when we gather, is to be reminded of what the scriptures have said. So Logan will present us today with an important message that I hope you will um, hear well and uh, live in accordance to. One other thing before he preaches, I'm I'm enjoying him standing uncomfortably next to me, so I'm going to drag this out. Um, Everything that happens here in the Church on Mill family um, is made possible because you give sacrificially. So I want to thank you for the ways in which you support uh, the work. Uh, Logan is not uh, paid by the church in a um, check kind of way. He's given uh, housing and a free room and board for the duration of his time here. And so he makes additional sacrifices and is supported by some people outside the church that enable him to give full-time. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, If you'd look on the back of your bulletin, there is um, an update each week that's given there related to our giving. And every now and then we like to draw attention to it. Um, If you'll notice uh, the budget uh, weekly needs, which is that second line on the back that says, a uh, little more than $7,000. That's weekly what the church members of the church voted in last December and represents the giving needs of the church each week. A little further down, you see a line that says difference. Um, there's almost always a difference, a little bit above or a little bit below. And uh, we are unusually, for this point in the year, a little bit behind. So I want to encourage you who are members here um, to give sacrificially so that the work can continue faithfully. Logan, bring us to the scriptures, brother. Good morning, everyone. You hear me okay? All right, awesome. Um, I just have a quick question I want to ask you guys. Uh, how many of you still watch the TV news? Raise your hand. Nice and high. All right, good. A lot of people still watch the news. How many people get the news online? 
all right? A little bit of a generation gap. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, one of the earliest memories I had was when, uh, for my grandparents, they would, uh, uh, every single night, 5 p.m., the news would come on. And it would just be crazy, every single night. And the news is so fascinating to me because um, the news focuses so much on the what and the where and the when and the how and the who. But the news very rarely asks the question, why? Why did he kill himself? Why did they rob that store? Why did he steal luggage out of Sky Harbor Airport? It's kind of strange. Why did they start brawls? Why did, they, why did those people start a brawl at the Cardinals football game? That's kind of weird, too. Um, why do movie theaters get shot up? Why do thousands of child protective services cases go uninvest, uninvestigated? How is that possible? Why do fathers abandon their children? Why do mothers abort their children? Why do I feel so depressed when I watch the news? <laughs> if you don't, there's not something wrong with me. I'm just saying. Um, I, and often, you know, you look on Facebook, 33 things that will restore your faith in humanity. And you read through it, and it's kind of nice. Like, okay, I feel a little bit better about myself and about people. And then, next story, a man buys an 8-inch knife to kill and stab a stranger. That's what he told the police. He walked into a pharmacy, walked up behind a random woman in a random pharmacy, and stabbed her in the neck. Kind of lowers my faith in humanity a little bit. Um, the news doesn't answer the question why he did that, but it happened. It's so important when we study the scriptures and look through stories and events that happen that we ask the most crucial question, why? Why is this here? Why did this happen? And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Throughout the four Gospels, Jesus very rarely expresses any kind of sorrow. Only three times does he express sorrow. One time for Lazarus. One time for Jerusalem. And one time for himself. It's a totally unique incident, a totally unique event in the scriptures. Jesus is described as being so sorrowful, so in anguish that he feels like he's dying. He feels like his soul is being torn apart. This is what his prayer is. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, it's nearly impossible to describe the agony that Jesus is experiencing in this passage. But I can try to. It is the decision of a soldier who's seen a grenade coming for his friends. All of his life goes through his mind, flashes before his eyes. He thinks of the repercussions, the consequences of one decision to save his friends by jumping on that grenade. He will leave his wife widowed. He will leave his son without a father, family without an income. His family will weep for him. A medal of honor doesn't stop tears. And he makes that decision. But even then, even that example is not enough to fully explain how Jesus was in agony for us. This is the same Jesus who before the Garden of Gethsemane is singing hymns with the disciples, then he's in agony, and then after that, he says to Judas and a bunch of robbers that come by, listen, I, am about to, I could send, if I prayed, I could give you know, 50,000 angels to come down and I wouldn't have to deal with you. He basically just says, step off. So he's in agony, and then he's just like, step off, brother. You don't, no worries. He's not, he's totally calm and confident going to the cross. But there's this one experience in which he's in total agony and suffering. Is Jesus crazy? When the Father hands him a cup, he says, take it away from me. But when a bunch of people come by with swords and clubs, he's like, whatever. 
It's totally interesting. This is the Jesus who spoke the universe into existence, the Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jesus who declares that he has all authority over everything, the Jesus who slept through the storm and then stopped the storm, the Jesus who cast out demons. Why, 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 why was Jesus in agony in the garden? What could have possibly caused him to feel this way? Jesus, the Son of God, is pleading with the Father to take away the cup. The cup is God's wrath for our sins. Jesus is going to drink the cup by dying on the cross for our sins. In doing so, Jesus will not be looked on by the Father as His beloved Son, but will be looked on as sin. Relationship broken. Have you ever been blamed for something you didn't do? If you have siblings, this has happened. <laughs> I don't need to ask a question. Mean, if, you, if you have siblings, this has happened to you. Jesus is going to take our guilt, our shame, our blame on the cross. This is why He is in agony. But it's not just for us. It's for all who believe in Him. And this is some of the greatest news that we can possibly receive today. Jesus being in agony. I want to show you how, show you how that works. It means far more than we can imagine. My hope is that you'll never look at this passage again. In order for us to understand why Jesus is in agony, we must begin at the beginning. We need to start with Genesis. And we need to see why it's come to this. Why is it that the sinless Son of God is going to step down and become the God-man, the one who was sacrificed for our sins? Long ago, I'm going to briefly go through this, because we don't have time to go through the whole Bible today, um, unless you want to. But uh, Long ago, God created the world and it was good. He created humanity and it was very good. Adam and Eve were in harmony, stewarding the Garden of Eden. They had a relationship with each other, and with God that was perfect. No shame, no guilt, no pride, no death, no suffering, no lack of any kind, no poverty, nobody stabbing each other in the neck, no worthless living, no selfishness. But what happened was a cosmic war was declared against God. This is before the fall. This is what happens is an angel named Lucifer looked at himself and thought himself worthy. In other words, he believed his own press. He believed his own hype. I should sit on the throne of God. And because of that sin, because of that pride, Lucifer was cast out of heaven. Jesus describes Satan as a liar and a murderer. And we're about to find out why. So we're going to go through it real quickly. Next slide here. Adam and Eve were our representatives. What does that mean? Well, it means that their decisions, their actions are tied to us today. Now you may say, I don't know Adam and Eve. I mean, I know... A couple named Adam and Eve in Malibu, but I don't know this Adam and Eve in the Bible, right? How does this apply to me? And that's a common objection, and it's one that I think we can kind of get a grasp on if I just tell you a little story. I used to work at a theater, and there was a rule in the theater. You can't let kids into R-rated movies, 12 and under kids, into R-rated movies after 6 p.m. The reason was I didn't want to take off all the adult paying customers. So I was new, didn't know the rule, kind of accidentally did that. The movie was Riddick. So we go in, I, I'm going and doing a silence is golden check. And what that means is go in there and make sure no one's doing anything illegal in the theater that the movie theaters don't want people doing in. Um, and go in there and, you, and I'm looking and I'm seeing right on the front row two parents and four little kids. And I turn, I look at the screen and just like an explosion, possibly the most gory, bloody scene in the movie or all movies just occurs on the screen. Just be, it's like crazy. I look over at the kids, and their eyes are like 
saucers, like just massive. I'm like, you guys are going to have nightmares for decades. It's, it's not going to be pretty. So here's the question though. Who bought the tickets? Parents bought the tickets. And this is what happened. The Bible does not just accurately describe what happens today. It accurately describes how it has come to this. If you experience, as a mother, any kind of painless childbirth, please let the world know because it will be news. If you, as a guy, go out and you don't sweat for your money and your work and work's not hard, let the world know. It's news. We live in a normal world in which the consequences of the fall are just normal. And we live in them. So, going on, next slide. Satan questions God's command to Adam and Eve that they should not eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Next slide. They, uh, Satan, Satan lies to Adam and Eve about what God commanded them. All right, next slide. They believe Satan's lie and desire the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So a sinful desire comes up in their hearts. Next slide. They disobey God by choosing their own desires over what God desired for them. Next slide. Adam and Eve are ashamed, guilty, and have lost their innocence. And we are no different at all in any way. The brutal reality is that our actions, our lives, our wills are tied in to Genesis 3. We say, my will be done. My desires, my plans. I'm going to buy a car because I desire that car. I'm going to go to this school because I desire this school. I will do what I want to do. This is the heartbeat of humanity. This is what we are. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament and human history, we see the total unraveling of what was good. What do we see? Murder immediately after the story. Rape, oppression, injustice, racism, genocide, mass murders, widows, orphans, stillborn babies, typhoid, cancer, Ebola. Every one of those is atrocious and tragic. There is, but there is one that is the greatest consequence of them all, and that is mankind, us, our spiritual relationship with God died. We were no longer reconciled to God. We were apart from God. In the next slide. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Life no longer became about worshiping God, pleasing God, enjoying God, being satisfied in God. Instead, Life became about enjoying other things, other people, pleasing other people, other things, glorifying them, praising them, living for them, dying for them. Now, think about your motivations, your desires, as cars that are speeding down the highway. And all of these cars are dragging behind trailers full of decisions and actions, the consequences of your motivations, your desires. These decisions and actions have consequences for your life, for others and especially for God. And you have dozens, if not hundreds, of these motivations and desires constantly running through your mind. They are the answers to the why questions that we rarely ask ourselves. And the worst part of all of this is that we truly think that the best thing for us is that our will be done. We have believed the lie that we know best for our lives that we are best satisfied with trivial things, and that we are the best. 
We deserve the award. We are the champion. We are the hero of our story. Just think for a second, though, of your desires and what you want and what you don't want. We never just think one thing. We never just want to get that promotion. We never just want our, for our friends to like us. We never just want to date this girl. We never just want to get perfect grades. We never just want to binge watch television. We never just want to watch pornography. We never just want our kids to be perfect. We never just want to have a nicer home and a nicer neighborhood. We never just want to retire at 50. Or equally, I just don't want to give up my evening to disciple someone or be discipled by someone. I just don't want to commit to a church. I just don't want to love people that I don't like. I just don't want my life to change because of the gospel. I just don't want deep relationships. I just don't want to study the Bible. I just don't want to pray tonight. I just don't want to forgive my family. I just don't want to stop gossiping. Now, I realize that long list of wants and don't wants, probably not a lot of us are going to say it out loud, right? And maybe you, you think you don't struggle with them. But I would gently, very gently ask you to ask the question, why? And to think through these things that you say. Why is it that we choose lesser things instead of God? There is always something more behind our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, and our desires. We assume, this is the assumption humanity makes, we assume our, we assume our motives are pure and that we are perfect in what we're doing. We just make this assumption. When we should assume the opposite, that our motives are sinful, that our motives are wrong, and we don't know what we're doing. Let's look at the next slide. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, let's see what Jesus said. The next slide. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Just the kind of stuff you want to talk about today, right? All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's from the heart. Now, I hope that together we are beginning to see our hopelessness, our disobedience to God. I'm not exempt from this at all. We're all in the same boat. Even the best desires we have can come from wrong motivations. Our will is so messed up and so bad that we don't even notice it. We think that we know best, and as a result of our arrogance, our pride, our foolishness, we make decisions that are rooted in sinfulness. Let me give you an example. I, I like my car that I drive. It's not my car. It's my parents' car. Um, very thankful for that. Uh, so um, my dad was down here visiting, and he's driving it. comes back and says, Logan, it's pulling to the left. I said, no, Dad, 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 Dad. It's not pulling to the left. You're just driving funny. That's okay. You're, get, you're getting older, getting a little bit older. It's okay. Um, so I'm like, he's like, all right, I'll tell you what. Go on the highway, go on the interstate, pull it up to 65, 75, and uh, let go of the wheel. So I'm here today, praise God. Uh, <laughs> no, um, but I let, I let go of the wheel, and what immediately happens? Pulls to the left. I had grown so accustomed and so used to driving with it pointing to the left that I just compensated. So all the time, our way of thinking, it's not just our actions, it's our whole way of thinking that's messed up. It's our whole paradigm, our whole mindset, our whole worldview. Our way of thinking is bent in such a way that we assume that we're right and God is wrong. 
Worse than that, it's normal in every single person because we're all wired to think this way. We're all wired to act this way, to believe in this, to feel this. However, that was a a purposeful pause. However, (laughs) praise God, there was one person who didn't act that way. There was one person who lived a different way. One person who perfectly followed the will of the Father for us. His name is Jesus Christ. We'll be spending the rest of the time looking at this passage in the Garden of Gethsemane and ask the question, why was Jesus in agony in the Garden? So let's turn to Matthew 26, 36. We'll get started. Matthew 26, 36. A couple of verses here. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and very troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So just some some context. Jesus has just come from the Last Supper with his disciples and he's gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, which, by the way, is a real garden in a real place It's a real city called Jerusalem in a real region of the world called the Middle East. We base our faith not just on this, but actually what happened there. And it's so important to remember that. Um, Peter has been boasting. This is what happened previously. Peter's been boasting. I'm not going to deny you, Christ. Don't worry. Rest of the disciples are all saying the same thing. Peter's always unique because he says it just a little bit louder. A couple of octaves usually higher or louder. Um, Jesus says the rest of the disciples to sit and pray. Then he invites the disciples who were closest to him, Peter, James, and John, to come with him to pray. And Jesus functionally experiences the weight of the task before him, the will of the Father to drink the cup of God's wrath against sinners. The text here is describing an experience that none of us can fully understand or grasp. It's a mystery. It's so beyond us. We, can't, we can begin to understand it, but we will not fully understand it until we see Christ. Now, Jesus, being fully God, hates sin. Jesus, being fully man, was about to become our sin. Jesus knows perfectly the Father's judgment that is coming against Him and the wrath that He will drink in the cup. Uh, In those times, what the Roman Empire would do, if you and your buddies were to knock over a convenience store or insurrection or whatever, what would happen is, if they capture you guys, they get you up in a line... And they would fill up a big chalice, big cup, full of poison. Now, I don't know how they uh, ordered the line. Maybe it was by, if your name was Anderson, maybe you're in real trouble here. But um, they put, they, you know, they gave the cup to the first person in the line. And if that person can drink that whole cup of poison without immediately dying, then the rest of his buddies can go free. This is what Jesus is about to do on the cross for us. He's about to step in line and say, I'm going to drink the cup of sin. I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath for sin. It is so incredible. And there's, there's uh, passages in the Old Testament talk about the cup of God's wrath. I'll just read one from Psalm 75, 6-8. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it 
from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs, to the very bottom of the cup. Can I, maybe you're here and you're skeptical, maybe you're here thinking about Christianity. One day, all of us, all of us will either drink the cup of God's wrath for our sins, or Christ will drink it for us. And I would plead with you, if you have not repented and believed in the gospel and trusted in Christ, not to wait and find out. I would plead with you, throw yourself the mercy of Jesus Christ and he will accept you. And it is so important that we think about the immensity of Christ's sacrifice for us. We have about 200 some people in this room. The concept that Christ not only died for your sins, but also for every selfish motivation, for every sickening thing that we've thought, for our messed up desires, our hypocrisy, it ought to overwhelm us to consider a Christian concert or whatever kind of concert, maybe a bar, whatever it is. I don't know, there's 5,000 people in a bar, but let's use an example. 5,000 people in a bar um, that Christ died for their sins. And not just their sins, but their selfishness, their motivations, their desires. And we pull it out even more and we see even more. The busiest, I've stepped on the busiest intersection of the world in Japan. It's mind-blowing to see thousands of people walking minute by minute to think that Christ died for them. What an incredible sacrifice. What an incredible sacrifice. Down to the very dregs, the very depth of the cup of God's wrath for our sin, He drank it all for us. Let me ask you a question. If today someone pulled a gun in Walmart, are you going to step in between that person and the person they're shooting at? Let's be honest. Our self-preservation kicks in pretty hard. And we're going to be running. Romans uh, 5, 8-9 says, But God shows His love for us, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him, that's Christ, from the wrath of God. This is incredible. Christ drinking the wrath of God for us. Totally. Not just every sin chronologically, but every sin all the way down. It's incredible to think of that. Let's, let's go on to verse 39 here. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let me make this simple statement. Jesus prayed this for us. Every time we have chosen to say, out of selfishness and pride and arrogance, my will, my will, my will. Jesus prayed this prayer for us. Every time, out of apathy, complacency, laziness, ignorance, foolishness, we have said, my will, my will, my will. Jesus prayed this for us. Now, I'm not telling you today to get better at white-knuckling your way to holiness, white-knuckling your way to Christianity. That is not at all. White-knuckle Christianity is not Christianity. I'm not telling you today that you should attempt to punch your motivations and your desires until they give up. Jesus prayed this way because we didn't and haven't and wouldn't and couldn't and can't. This is the purpose of this prayer. It's, it's a prayer for us. So often we consider how Jesus died for our sins. Do we consider He died for all of our motivations, all of our sinful desires, all the wrong 
the engine, the fuel behind those sins that occurred. This is what Christ has done. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Christ submitted to God's will in a complete way that we never could have. Christ, uh, God's will was to crush and grieve the Son, and it was for our sake. We are the offspring. We are the children of God. God's will is going to prosper in Christ's hand because of Christ's obedience. Go on to next uh, slide. There you go. Good. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We will die for you, Jesus, but we can't quite stay awake for you. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. It's ironic that they fall asleep. Most zealous to defend Christ. They fall asleep. The temptation will be for them to fall into temptation and run away and hide. Does that sound like anything familiar? It's in Genesis 3. Fall into temptation, run away and hide. It's the exact same. There's, it's, it's incredible. Genesis 3 all the way right here in Matthew 26. It's incredible. Humanity in this same spot and we're no different at all. We do the exact same thing. And verse 40, 42. Again for the second time. He went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. Christ obeys the will of the Father and accepts that the only way by which He will save His people is through drinking the cup of God's wrath for us. He's accepting God's will for us for all times and we refused it. Verse 43, And again He came and He found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, He went and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. Jesus again is praying the same prayer. He's not relenting from the will of God. Instead, He is fully accepting it. He is preparing Himself for the coming events for which the entire story of the Scriptures have been pointing. The Messiah dying for the sins of His people. Verse 45 and 46. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. This is the night in which the greatest injustice will occur. Jesus is going to be accused of blaspheming God. He will be wrongly condemned to death. The crowd will free a guilty man instead of Jesus. He will be beaten until he barely resembles a man. He will be whipped. He will be mocked. He will wear a crown of thorns. And he will carry the cross. And he will die on the cross. And all that happens. He goes willingly and in accordance with the Scriptures and the Father's will. He has accepted God's will for His life so that you may accept, believe, and follow God's will, God's will for your life. Have you accepted God's will for your life? Are you doing God's will? It's not hard to find God's will in the Bible. It's hard to follow. It's difficult. We're constantly screaming, My will, My will, My will. Hebrews 13, 20-21 says this, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We work His will out in our lives because of what Christ has done. And God, He works His, His will out in our lives because it's pleasing for Him to transform us into the image of His Son. So now, we need to think about this. 
None of this works unless Christ died for our sins. Unless Christ has risen again. We are united in His death and united in His life. In His resurrection. In His victory. In His power over sin. So finally, we must ask one question. Why? If Jesus was in agony for us in the garden so that through Him, drinking the cup of God's wrath against our sins, we could be freed from our messed up will, how can we live for things that are lesser than the will of God? Why do we live for ourselves instead of God? Why do we still hold on to the chains that have been broken? Why do we still waver in following His will? Why do we believe our will is better than God's will? Why do we continue in pride and selfishness and apathy? Jesus agonized in the garden, not just so that you would not have to drink God's will. Sorry, God's will. God's wrath, sorry, in the cup. Jesus agonized in the garden so you could actually real, real, very real, functionally follow God's will in your life, in the Scriptures. What is God's will in your life, you may ask? I don't know. I haven't found it, right? It's actually right here. Are you living abundantly because of Jesus? It's God's will for you in John 10.10. Are your desires being satisfied fully in Christ instead of other things or people? It's God's will for you in John 4.14. Are you finding contentment regardless of wealth or poverty? It's God's will for you in Philippians 4.11-12. Are you giving thanks for all things? It's God's will for you in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Are you rejoicing when you suffer? It's God's will for you in James 1.2. Are you living peaceably with all people as much as it depends on you? It's God's will for you in Romans 12.18. Are you killing your sinful desires like it's a war because it is a war? It's God's will for you in Colossians 3.5. Are you throwing off malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? It's God's will for you in 1 Peter 2.1. Are you craving the Scriptures for nourishment in your everyday life? It's God's will for you in 1 Peter 2.1. Are you making disciples who make disciples? It's God's will for you in Matthew 28.19 and 20. See, God's will isn't lost. It is here in the Scriptures. It's not hard to find. Let's just be real. It's hard to follow. But this is the great, incredible news. Jesus submitted to God's will in the garden so that you can follow God's will in the Scriptures. In your homes, in your families, in your workplace, everywhere. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's incredible to think about. And I pray that you and us and all of us would ask this question, why did Jesus agonize in the garden? And we would answer, because He did it for us so that we can follow God's will in our life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You so much for Your Scriptures. Thank You so much for this passage. Thank You for Your agony in the garden for our sake, Lord. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for Your death and resurrection. I pray, God, we would not settle for lesser things. I pray that we would seek You. We would pursue You. We would desire You. We would find contentment and satisfaction in You, God. And I pray that You would work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would You work in our hearts today and convict us and change us and comfort us and guide us into following Your will for our life. In Jesus' name, Amen.